Both Barley and Niffler need high-powered dog food to help them out in the field. Whenever I live somewhere with refrigeration, I love feeding them Nom Nom Now. Niffler can be a slow and picky eater, and he actually dances and whines when he knows Nom Nom Now is coming out of the fridge, and then licks the bowl clean. Nom Nom's food is full of fresh proteins that your dog loves, and the vitamins and nutrients they need to thrive. You can actually see proteins in vegetables like beef, chicken, pork, peas, carrots, kale, and more. When you sign up for Nom Nom Now, you share information on your dog's age, breed, weight, allergies, food preferences, and, importantly, their activity level. Then they'll tailor specially made blends and serving sizes to your dogs, which are delivered in a huge, exciting refrigerated box. If you're ready to make the switch to fresh, you can order Nom Nom Now today by going to zen.ai slash canine conservationists one and use the offer code canine conservationists all one word to get 50 percent off your first order plus free shipping so again that is zen.ai slash canine conservationists number one and use the offer code canine conservationists at checkout you'll get 50 percent off and of course nom nom comes with a money money back guarantee if your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Hello and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, canine welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Frout, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I'm here talking to Cesar Estien all about environmental justice and inclusivity in the field of um, ecology, and particularly, um, we'll be talking a little bit about academia. So Cesar is a National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellow and a Chancellor Fellow at University of California, Berkeley in the Shell Lab, where his doctoral research focuses on understanding how environmental injustice and the landscape heterogeneity it creates within and between cities underpins wildlife behavior, health, and biodiversity. Cesar serves as the co-chair of the Environmental Justice Section of the Ecological Society of America and writes about ur urban ecology at life in the city, evolving in an urbanizing world. And he is involved in the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Language Project, which is a collective working to revise harmful terminology in ecology and evolutionary biology. So Cesar, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm super stoked to talk all things cities and ecology and academia <laughs> and all the fun and, and things that happen there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got we've got so much ground to cover and I think it's going to be a lot of fun to kind of weave it all together. So why don't we kind of, you know, we'll do the classics thing. Let's start out with your background. How did you did you fall in love with ecology or did you fall into ecology? You know, how did how did we end up here? Yeah, super great question and something I, I feel like I always try to recall as I write a bunch of statements. Yeah, I, I think I, I fell into, eco in, into ecology and I think um, a lot of it led to a lot of reflection of like, yeah, have I always loved the environment and, and when did it become super special? And I think um, going into undergrad, I was actually an engineer major and I was really interested in like civil engineering and roads and sustainability and better infrastructure. Uh, and then I took a math class and <laughs> it was not for me. Uh, and it was super hard. And so I was at this, this intersection of, yeah, where do I go? And I remembered a lot about, um, 
it was environmental science class I took in high school where I learned a lot about climate change and heard that term for the first time um, and learned a lot about how humans are impacting the earth, um, whether it's for better or for worse. And I, I became really interested in following that lens and it was really, really unclear where that would go. And so I just switched to biology. Um, yeah, and eventually landed in this lab where I met my first mentor, Jessica Cusick, who's now a professor at um, Utah Valley State. And um, I was really interested in just like learning about animals. And so I watched some videos of birds leaving the nest, which is so cool to me at the time. Um, and still is really cool. Um, and that's kind of how I fell into ecology. And I felt really, really in love with it when I uh, got to work with North American red squirrels in the middle of Canada in the Yukon territory. Um, and it was there like holding my first squirrel, just like going through the boreal forest. It was, it was really life changing. And that's where I was like, I want to do this for a very long time, as long as I can. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how I fell into it. Oh, that's so neat. And um, wow, I mean, being in the Yukon is such a, such a privilege that so many, so few people really get to um, get to experience. Okay. So how did you, how did you hear about the, um, the NSF GRFP? What is that? And how did you go about actually winning um, this grant? Yeah, I think, um, during my uh, gap year process, so after I graduated and finished my little undergrad project, I attended a conference virtually um, where I met one of my mentors, um, and she told me about the GRP when I was interested in grad school as something I should highly consider. Um, and so I, I was trying to figure out, yeah, what do I want to write about? And I wanted to extend a bit of the work I did for my undergrad, which is looking at microplastics and sea urchins and reproduction and how plastic can interact with those gametes in the water. Um, and so I want to think more about cities, right? And I think plastic is highly synonymous with cities and humans and, and um, a really big byproduct of our waste. And so, um, yeah, that's when I heard about GRFP. I, I reached out to mentors and started writing my project. And that's when I met my um, advisor now, Chris Shell. And I met with him and um, I told him I was just really interested in cities and how different cities are um, or how different, you know, the space within one city can be. And I want to really think about how does that stress out an animal. Um, and so that landed me on this, this project that I'm um, going to start sometime next year, hopefully, um, thinking about cities, socioeconomics, and environmental health burdens, and how all those differences within a city can stress an animal out or potentially make them unhealthy. Um, and I think that idea was, I mean, I loved the idea. It was really nice that reviewers also loved the idea um, and thought it was this novel thing for urban ecology to think about. I think urban ecology is still a new field. And so it's learning a lot about yeah, the kind of questions to ask and what to think about, especially on the social side of things. Um, yeah. And so that landed me to win it, which was super exciting. I remember uh, waking up to a bunch of messages from like a lot of my Twitter mutuals that were just like, Cesar, Cesar, wake up, wake up. Like you are on the list. <laughs> you have the GRP getting emails from mentors, which is so <laughs> exciting. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's, that's how that came to be. Yeah. Yeah. And then for anyone who's not familiar, um, so this NSF GRFP is three years of funding over the course of five years. So you kind of have five years to complete it, um, but you can take, you have to take at least two years where you don't actually get funding. Um, and it, so, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. So I was just awarded the GRFP um, and had a pretty similar experience where I, I woke up and um, was checking Twitter um, while I was in the bathroom, as one does. Um, and saw other people announcing that they had gotten it and was like, oh, shit, <laughs> like, I should check yeah, my yeah. email. Um, 
and uh, had a couple messages from people in WhatsApp, but missed them until after I read the, read the email. Um, so um, it covers your university funding um, or your like your tuition, your fees, all of those sorts of things, and then also gives you a stipend that is quite a bit more generous than kind of your what I think a lot of us think of as like a typical um, graduate student stipend. And it's definitely more than what I was offered at the couple places I had been accepted to before getting it. Um, so it's kind of a golden ticket sort of thing. I know for me, what the GRFP gave me was that I had two different labs that I was looking at and one of them was willing to take me on, but we had a lot of questions about funding to make sure that I was going to be able to complete everything as a fully funded student. And then the other lab was mm -hmm. not really willing to take me on until we had more funding secured. Um, and it allowed me to end up going with that second lab. Um, you know, it was kind of that, the, because I kind of came with that check in hand, they were able to take me on. So it's a, it's a huge deal for graduate studies in particular. Um, so what did, what did kind of going through that process, um, illuminate for you uh and uh yeah what what have you kind of learned about the national science foundation and opportunity and the, you know all of these sorts of questions swirling around as it relates to science and graduate studies and who gets kind of let into in the door for this next level of academia at least yeah i think writing my grfp was such a fun and hard time uh like i was also working a full tech job and so i was you know waking up at 7 a.m., finishing work at 6.30 p.m., and then, like, writing my application in the night. And Same. I think what was really great about it, yeah, it's 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 what I think a lot of us forget, or a lot of people, yeah, just forget that we do in this field. It's like we're working so much sometimes um, for just, like, a chance to get something. Uh, and it can be a lot. It can be a huge burden sometimes. And um, I think that's part of what goes into some people not even applying, right? I think if I was an undergrad when I was applying – um, I didn't apply to GRP at, at that time, but when I was applying for grad school, it was the same thing. I was working full-time or part-time. I was taking 15 credit hours. I was doing research on the side um, and then, like, having a social life. And so, yeah, where do you fit grad school applications into that? But, um, yeah, for the NSF GRP, it was really nice to rethink why I fell in love to ecology. As you know, you have to write a personal statement on top of a research statement. And so um, I got to write about because I think I wrote it in my NSF GRP or maybe a different personal statement, like re rethinking the first time I fell in love with ecology and um, the first time I was in my grandmother's garden and how much time I've spent in her garden. And also the fact that I wanted to follow suit as my mom, where my mom, you know, she is not the best English speaker. And um, when we first moved to the States or when my mom first moved to the States um, and wanted to enroll me in, uh, elementary school, there's this huge thing where they heard her accent and thought I needed additional learning help and like this whole burden. And she fought for me and for me to just be in, in, in quote unquote normal classes and just standard English, English classes. Um, and in my personal statement, I kind of wrote about wanting to carry that torch and like reach people who look like me and come from my background and make sure they have access to the same things that, you know, everyone should have access to. Um, yeah. And I think, at the end of the day, the GRFP is is a really great opportunity. It's obviously not equitable. Like a lot of people apply, um, and few people get it, and that's how a lot of things go. But you know, I wrote about that in my background, right? I wrote about 
embracing my blackness, embracing uh, being Latin and all these things. And there are some people who do that and then get really, really nasty comments about how that's actually not important at all. And we didn't want to, we didn't want to hear that. Or like, because of that, you are hindering yourself to certain opportunities. And I definitely don't think that's true at all. And so, you know, I think I knew that even though my proposal was great, I loved it. I spent a lot of time in it. A lot of it is like, slight lottery where it's like you you get lucky reviewers who are actually going to score you in a really respectful way in a way that you know doesn't have a bunch of internalized biases ak some form of racism or sexism you know there's a lot of people on twitter who i'm pretty you've that you've seen where you know they're like oh you being a woman is actually not that important and like these struggles aren't that big of a deal or people talking about being first gen and working and and people knocking on being first gen in their reviews and not really thinking about the fact that a lot of first gen students have to work and that's why maybe their grades look a certain way. Um, and then going into the reviews and saying that they're not competitive when like that may not be the truth. It may be actually they needed to work 30 hours to pay their rent and didn't have time to study. So yeah, I think that's when I started thinking a lot, a lot about it. And I eventually, you know, met my friend Brandon um, through a conference, through a virtual conference and my mentor Jorge, and we were just chatting about all of this. Um, and then we decided to write a bit about it, <laughs> as you know. Yeah, yeah, and I'm really excited to get into that. And yeah, just echoing a lot of the stuff you're saying. I mean, I know when, so I guess GRFP announcement day 2022 came out and I was on Twitter and just reading. And I don't know if it was the algorithm pushing this stuff to me or if 2022 was kind of a particularly nasty decision year. But I just felt like I was seeing like dozens of really, really discouraging stories of, um, yeah, mostly reviewer comments coming out that seemed racist, sexist, insensitive. And I pretty much decided not to apply to the GRFP and then got kind of halfway through a Fulbright application and then looked at the GRFP and was like, you know, I think I think I can kind of modify these things to be each other and decided to go for it. And I'm really glad I did because I got it. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's really discouraging out there. And I know I've also had a lot of conversations with my younger sister. Um, and then a couple of good friends of mine who we grow up in the same pretty poor, pretty, um, extraordinarily rural part of Northern Wisconsin. And the, the four of us, so these two friends who went to law school and then my sister who got a full ride to med school and myself all have, had a relative amount of privilege within that community, but nonetheless, like, you know, the public school opportunities and other opportunities that we had weren't necessarily better than our, our neighbors. Um, and it's always really interesting thinking through how to leverage that in application processes. Um, and mm -hmm. I, you know, how to talk about certain disadvantages that you had that, um, without feeling like you're weaponizing it, um, or trying, um, I don't know. Yeah. It's just, it's something that I remember having a conversation with a particularly one of my good friends who was trying to talk about, um, I think for law school, you have to write some sort of DEI statement of like what you are going to bring to the campus. And she was like, I don't know, I'm a white lady. I've got nothing. And I was like, you're from one of the, like, the, our our county when we were all in high school had the highest teen pregnancy rate in the state and is one of the highest alcoholism rates in the state, um, in Wisconsin, which is saying something. Um, <laughs> and uh, 
yeah, I don't know. It's it's really challenging as an applicant, and then especially with the additional fear that trying to talk about the things that make you a compelling candidate can also be taken the wrong way and weaponized against you. Um, so what? Um, tell us about about this paper um, that did come out of these conversations and these experiences that you had, um, because I think this is how you and I first connected on Twitter and was the main reason that I wanted to have you on the show. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and so what, I think one of the things that started this paper was like a conversation of DEI amongst me, um, my friend Brandon, and also like our our mentor and, and friend Jorge, where we talked a lot about DEI and like how the broader impacts section particularly of the GRFP. So um, yeah, for those who don't know, you, you, write, you have an intellectual merit section where you're talking about research and your academic background and you know why you're good enough to do what you, what you want to do, right? And you have the broader impact section where you're talking a bit more about your reach into the community and like how have you reached groups that maybe aren't the majority or you know worked with 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 policy people with managers right have you just like kind of worked out of the ivory tower and amongst us three we're talking a lot about you know you have a lot of white people particularly getting the grfp and writing these these statements of broader impacts where because of you know the current climate we live in a lot of people are thinking about injustices and so they're cramming a bunch of things into their into their broader impacts. Like I'm going to work with, you know, low income people. I'm going to go to this black community. I'm going to go to this Latin community. I'm going to work with, you know, whatever, whatever. And then they get funded. And does any of it happen? I'm not sure we're we're sure it's going to happen. But reviewers are really excited to hear that, and so they get, get scored highly. And so that's what uh, this big conversation started around. Of like, yeah, this DEI. When people are writing these broader impact section, they're getting awarded and they're not doing the work. Is this actually helpful or, or hurting marginalized groups um, to like encourage this kind of broader impact construction? Um, and I think people can write DEI statements and broader impact statements by thinking a lot about not necessarily always the hardships, but also, yeah, how do you leverage your identity to change this normalness that we exist in academia, right? Um, which I think a lot of people are struggling with with the fact that DEI statements are required and yeah maybe they feel like they don't bring quote-unquote bring much to the table but I think it's a lot about yeah how, how do you just change what exists already um yeah so anyways we really started thinking about that and we we're like oh maybe we should write a paper on it maybe we should have a perspective and our friend Jorge recommended that we chat with our friend Daniel who was kind of thinking about this stuff um and also had applied to the GRP had not gotten it um and that's kind of how it came to be working almost backwards. We started with the, the, the broader impact section of the paper um, and worked outwards. So thinking about, yeah, how do we reimagine the broader impact section, particularly how do we maybe encourage people to definitely reach out and engage with the local community, but also make sure they're doing that if they want to do that and not make outreach feel like this, Thing that needs to happen if you're not ready to do it um, or you know if you don't think you're the best person how can you support those kind of things and so that's where one of our recommendations became community partnership and like making sure you're also doing things that the community wants to do I think sometimes on our head we're like oh this would definitely make sense like why would this community not mm -hmm. want to do this uh, but maybe they don't want to do that maybe they're like and yeah instead of 
science ed, we actually, you know, want to work on this like gardening project, or maybe we don't want to do the gardening project. Maybe we just want like someone to help us write lessons or, you know, things like that. So yeah, that's, maybe I'll stop rambling a little bit. (laughs) No, no. I think that, I mean, it's the, I, I really liked the way that you started it with thinking about the broader impacts, because I know that was something I struggled with as I was writing that section was, you know, being like, I think I know what I could write here that was going to that would look really good, but I really want to also write something that I feel like I can complete and would genuinely be helpful to the community. And, you know, one of the things that I actually liked, because again, I was doing, I so I proposed the same project for the Fulbright and the GRFP, which was to return to um, the team that I had worked with in Kenya and then just kind of run my own project looking at um, niche partitioning in um, the carnivores in this area. But because I had already been to Kenya and already had these on the ground contacts, um, which obviously I think that is a thing that like, that's a valid reason to strengthen a, uh, to mm-hmm. support a, a, an application. But I was also able to reach out to them and like get in contact with the director of the Maybai Community Conservancy and like ask him a little bit about like, here, here's what I'm thinking about proposing. And then also ask Action for Cheetahs in Kenya, like, hey, do you guys have translators available who can actually help me with this? Because my Swahili is pretty bad and my Samburu is much worse. Um, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be very useful for most of that. Um, but it's just, it's so challenging to try to think through how to actually pro- propose things that aren't just kind of furthering narratives of community science or, you know, colonialism when they're asking you for these things. And one of the things, again, actually, so circling back to the Fulbright that I did, like the Fulbright requires that you have a letter of support from who you say you're going to be working Mm -hmm. with. So they actually have, you actually have to make that connection and get someone to write something saying, yes, this is going to be useful to us. And that may be kind of specific to international stuff or stuff where you you know you're going into other communities which is the entire point of the fulbright and it's not a given with the grfp um but i really like that they require that and yeah yeah so what else kind of came up as you were going through the grfp and um other recommendations that you had um for how to to improve this process because the other thing i notice every year when i look at the grfp announcement um is just like how many gills there are on that list yeah, exactly. I'm like, I'm trying to remember <laughs> everything we we threw in that. But like, yeah, I think one thing, the first thing we thought about, again, were these biases that lie within it, right? Like, why do these biases exist? Um, and how do we potentially dampen those amount of biases? And I think the easy answer is different reviewers, diverse reviewers, reviewers that don't come from the same background. So not all academics. Maybe we need different career types, right? We need professional scientists. Maybe they're already wrapped in there, but we need a, a, a bigger portion of them. Um, I think we also thought about reviewers from different institution types, right? Uh, not just R1s and R2s, um, but HBCU reviewers, other minority-serving institutions. Um, that was a really big one. And with that, again, came with like this reviewer bias. And so one thing we recommended and I don't know how this would work and how much more work this would yield but um, this idea of like we love peer review that's like the gold stamp of research like what would it mean for these reviews to be peer reviewed by one person at least mostly just to catch biases right so maybe not rescoring the entire application but making sure that those reviews are read so that things that are really harmful are redacted because you know, regardless enough, if you get the GRP, 
it hurts, sure. But one thing that is very damaging is to read something about your identity and what someone thinks about it in a negative light coming from a field that you're trying to persist in and break into. And so I think that was one thing we really wanted to, to curb um, was people re- you know, receiving these harmful reviews. Um, yeah, and, and we kind of just chat about the community partnership and I love that you brought up the Fulbright. I also applied for Fulbright, did not get it. But one of the things that I, I did appreciate about it is that that letter of support where it's like, in mine, for me, it was like, oh, I'm going to work with the museum. I'm going to use a bunch of stuff from them. But like, yeah, it, it could all just be words. And so like reaching out to that person being like, hey, this is what I'm thinking about. Like, does this even make sense? Like, are you willing to support that? And then getting that in writing is, I think, really important. And so we recommended like, yeah, if you're going to collaborate with these community organizations, like having an, uh, an extra letter of support be required or like, Maybe not once you're applying, but like if you get admitted, because sometimes, you know, you change institutions, right? You write your GRP for one location and then you don't go there, which is totally fair. Things change. And so giving that that award a year or two to like figure out what is my new plan of action for community engagement, establishing that and then getting that letter of support that's saying, okay, hey, like this person did talk to us, right? Like Kayla did talk to us. She's going to do this. And we're really excited to like weave our goals with her goals and produce this new thing, right? I think that would really change it. And yeah, again, I'm like, I don't know how much work this would actually <laughs> entail, but I think, it, I think at the same time we we use that phrase of yeah, it may be a lot of work to stop a lot of DEI efforts, a lot of yeah. justice efforts, and I think and like it's, it's the National important. Science Foundation. Like, we're not yeah. talking about some like local like volunteer run national history museum or something um where you know it's still kind of an excuse but you know i don't know i think excuses often come from like valid concerns um well and i like that okay now i'm just now i'm just uh, trying to come up with like how we're going to write the second version of this paper but um (laughs) i i one of the other things that you mentioned was specific funding support for these broader impacts. And that was something that um, I also, I loved that idea because, so my original idea for my Kenya, my Fulbright, um, which are or the, uh, the GRP that I wrote for Kenya, which I'm a perfect example of this. I'm neither doing that project nor going to the school that I um, had originally proposed. Um, mm-hmm. But what I was planning on doing was using all of the location and habitat use data that we collected on these carnivores to hopefully try to figure out areas that we could share with the local herders as far as where to construct their bomas to reduce um, depredation. And that was something that they seemed interested in and interested in knowing more about. They have all this historical knowledge, but because of some droughts and other like pretty rapid changes in the in the, um, the area, you know, historical um, and ancestral knowledge is not as useful as it should be right now. Um, yeah. But, like, I don't know where the money for these educational materials in multiple tribal languages was going to come from. And I had every intention of trying to figure that out um, and hopefully figuring out how to do it on the cheap. But maybe you could have something where once you get those letters of support, that then unlocks that um that additional funding um and then you know i think you i'm almost certainly mentioned this but talking about what people actually need and i think again this comes back to 
the struggle when you know you're writing a grant, which is a competition. And um, I think sometimes the ideas that look most interesting on paper for broader impacts might not necessarily be the thing that the community needs the most. Um, and like Action for Cheetahs in Kenya, the organization that we worked with in Kenya is a really good example of this. You know, they're really interested in preserving cheetahs. However, that means a huge part of what they do is they do rabies vaccination campaigns um, and sterilization clinics for village dogs. And like, I think if you know very little about the, you know, the situation on the ground there, that doesn't make sense. And you're like, why, if I'm trying to save cheetahs, why am I donating money for a parvo clinic? Um, but those, you know, one health approaches and overall, it, like it's, it's, yeah. And then, you know, you even get into other communities where, you know, you try my, my boyfriend here in El Salvador and I, I have had arguments where, you know, every time we see a wild animal, he says, Oh, that's good in soup. Um, <laughs> and we go back and forth about like, Hey, maybe every time we see an iguana, we don't need to think about it as a cheeseburger. Um, but if we were trying to have those conversations on more of a community scale, like you would need to also then understand like where the community is coming from and like how deforestation and farming and like poverty and all these other things come into it. And again, then you're also coming back to the question of like, now we're just, we're just talking about like one little PhD student and how much they yeah. can actually do, especially again, if the NSF isn't offering support. So yeah. What else, what else do we have to say about this? Um, or are we starting to go in circles? <laughs> no, I think that that's a really good point. And yeah, I, I echo everything you just said, I think. Yeah, when I was writing my GRP, I wrote a lot for an area that I don't live in now. And I, I, I won't live there. I won't be able to do the work I propose. And so I had to think about how to shift that. And yeah, and when I had the idea of what to shift, it was like, oh my God, I need like $5,000 at least. So where, where am I going to get this money? And fortunately, I got that money and I got to work with some community people um, to help me get that money. But even now, it's still like, it's a bit of a, a stretch. I had to, you know, we emailed school boards. We're like, is this something you guys would be interested in in the area? Is it something that like would actually work for this area? Um, and they were like, yes, that'd be great. We think that'd be great. We can't offer you funding, but like here's somewhere you can maybe get funding. Um, and so now with my, with my partner down in um, Carmel Valley, uh, Dr. Hunter, we've been thinking about, yeah, how each year, where are we going to get the money from? Where, yeah. where is that money coming from? How are we going to get it? Because it, it is a challenge funding, it's a hard reality for a lot of these things. Yeah. And again, like you point out, I'm just a PhD student. And that's one thing my advisor was, was very supportive of. He, he loved the idea that I had, but emphasized that like, he would really prefer if I didn't do it alone because it yeah. would be a lot to do. You know, it's, it's a, people have whole jobs doing this kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, you know, as we're pivoting, I'm either going to most likely end up in Alaska um, or in Central America. And if we end up in Central America, we're having conversations of, you know, at least I speak the language there, which helps massively in comparison to Kenya and potentially in comparison to a lot of other folks who would like to do work in, in uh, Central America. But um, from the scat dog perspective, you know, there we would like to be offering more education um, on that side of things. So, you know, we're already starting to think about like, okay, how do we how are we going to go about finding and hiring field techs and like letting people shadow and trying to broaden this scat dog method in Central America? Um, and then mm -hmm. again, this then just keeps going back to these questions of like baseline and community support because 
I, and a lot in my experience internationally, there are times where it's it's not necessarily hard to find people who are excited about the conservation dog side of things. But then kind of going back to, okay, where do we find dogs that are good at this sort of work? Where do we find people who have the dog handling experience? And, you know, you can find these, um, you can find people who are really interested in it, but some like the, the baseline level of knowledge of dog care or availability of good veterinary services or whatever is really different from what you would expect in most parts of the U.S. And, you know, I think we're going to be able to pull off what we're hoping to do as far as getting local engagement on the the dog side of things um but a huge part of that also just comes down to the fact that like i speak the language and i live down here um Mm -hmm. which you know is also you know if you're wanting to work in an area and you actually genuinely are committed to broader impacts speaking the language and having some experience there is probably something that would be a really reasonable first step um, but not yeah, that it's easy. Definitely. It's not simple. I, I mean, again, like if I had gotten the Kenyan project, like I was going to Duolingo it up with, with Swahili as best as I could, but there's no, there's no Duolingo for Samburu, which is the tribal language that's predominant in that area. And it's just going to have to hope that I'd pick it up. Canine Conservationists offers several on-demand webinars to help you and your dog go along in your journey as a conservation dog team. Our current on-demand webinars are all roughly one hour long and priced at $25. They include Puppy Scent Work, all about raising and training a conservation puppy, Found It, Alerts and Changes of Behavior, and What You're Looking For, Teaching Your Dog a Target Odor. Find these three webinars along with jackets, treat pouches, mugs, bento boxes, and more over at our website, canineconservationist.org slash shop. So tell us about urban ecology and environmental justice and like... I'm just going to throw those two terms at you and let you talk now um, that I, I, I think you're, I think you're prepared for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. I, so yeah, I just had a meeting with my friend Caleb and we were talking a lot about urban ecology because he's interested in, yeah, thinking about urban ecology from different lens, because I think depending on who you ask, urban ecology may mean different things to different people, right? Like urban ecology to me as an ecologist, maybe I'm thinking about, a lot of environmental attributes of cities um, and how they interact with wildlife as well as the social side. Whereas, you know, someone who studies more people and relations may think of urban ecology as knowledge production and space and time and and where is that and who lives where. Um, But yeah, urban ecology is to me a really fascinating space. And I'm, I'm really lucky that this is a type of research that excites me because yeah, cities are becoming this really interesting space where people and wildlife are really becoming intertwined on so many levels. Um, and we have this really interesting opportunity to learn so much more about how our animals actively responding to everything humans throw at them, everything that uh, cities throw at them and how cities are changing and, and wildlife are changing in response to them and humans are changing in response to wildlife. So it's this really interesting cycle that's all together. And um reason why I try to integrate and center environmental justice in that and in my research is because cities are also highly inequitable, right? I think a quintessential factor of cities, sure, are buildings, but also like inequity, right? Cities look different for a very specific reason. You know, parts of cities look different for that reason. Um, And a lot of it is the history of cities, right? Things like segregation, things like disinvestment, things like zoning laws. so that's also why I think cities are 
interesting is always a weird way, weird word to use for this kind of stuff, but they're, you know, this nice intersection, <laughs> I don't know another way to say it, for thinking about how does environmental justice interact with urban space and how does all of that interact with wildlife, right? How do these laws that are actively or have, you know, in the past oppressed people change the landscape that wildlife experience and that people experience? And how does that change the relationship between people and wildlife, right? Why is it that some people in cities have experience with, you know, bad wildlife, quote unquote? Why do they always see pests, quote unquote? I use quote because pest is this term that I think is, you know, it's not the best. Um, yeah. And why do certain people have experiences with good wildlife? Why are they, you know, and why do they have leisure to do that? Um, I think it all goes back to how cities were built and developed and all these things. And so, yeah, it's, it's exciting for me to think more about, yeah, how do these policies lead down to affect the ecology of cities and the landscape that animals experience? How does it change their behavior? How does it change how healthy they are? Um, yeah, why do, why do people view wildlife differently? And yeah, I think the same thing with environmental justice. It means different things to different people. Um, you have food justice, you have climate justice, you have energy justice. And so, so many things are baked into there. And I, I think about it in a very broad environmental sense. And I've been trying to think about it more from like an emotional standpoint um, where, yeah, where are these like negative emotions with animals distributed um, and who gets to have, again, those good experiences with wildlife and with nature um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thing and, you know, a kind of hard thing to think about sometimes of like, yeah, how do you quantify that besides like survey work and ethnographic work? But yeah, um, that's kind of where I'm at. And I think it's, it's really, really fascinating. And yeah, it's fun to do this for my PhD to think about inequity and injustice at the core of cities. Um, and a lot of that is built on, again, like how, anti-black cities are, how we're built on indigenous land, you know, how these cities are built and have all this violence, you know, built into the infrastructure. How does that influence wildlife? Um, it's kind of where I'm going with it. And so I think it's exciting. <laughs> exciting is such a weird yeah. way to, weird to I, use, I was yeah. just going to say fascinating. And that also feels like kind of a gross word to use, but yeah, like hopefully people kind of know what we mean. Um, but I, I mean, I'm loving this idea of kind of you, I didn't, I don't think I had quite thought of this this way as far as being able to use cities and the policies around them as a, a much uh, kind of a, a smaller area in order to look at how policies and human behavior can affect animal behavior and, um, you know, wildlife health and outcomes. And I'm sure that all then bleeds over into One Health approaches. I used to work at um, an organization called, called Conservation Colorado, and they were very focused on a lot of environmental justice questions, but it was mostly around mm -hmm. like, air quality and water quality and, you know, where the buses go. Um, and those are or particularly the rail system in Denver. Um, and I don't think I had ever kind of taken that out to think more about wildlife behavior. I know one, of, I mean, one of the things that I'm hoping, I mean, my, my hopeful project for my PhD, one of the things we're really hoping to look, do is be able to get enough samples from enough different countries that we might be able to do some looking at how different um, countries and their park policies and kind of enforcement 
of poaching and you know deforestation and those sorts of things maybe affecting carnivore behavior and that's something i've always been really interested in is kind of how like a federal government's mm -hmm. approach to management or lack thereof kind of influence wildlife behavior but i love the idea of doing that in a city that sounds um easier permitting wise and uh just uh <laughs> I, but also just really really relevant so do you have like a, a study species that you're focusing on what are your methodologies where where are you working like as much as you know right now i know you're still pretty early in a lot of these um these projects yeah, no, all, all really good questions. Um, yeah, so I and the lab I'm in primarily focus on urban carnivores. So we think about coyotes and raccoons and opossums and skunks. And a lot of my work individually really focuses on raccoons and coyotes. Um, and for one project, quite a bit of the others. Um, yeah, and for methodologies, I, I'm using a lot of different ones because I think I'm doing a lot of different things <laughs> that require different approaches. And so you know, on one chapter, I'm using a lot of mapping um, and a lot of those tools, along with like open data on biodiversity, like iNaturalist, to think about how has redlining and segregation, something that, you know, happened in the 30s, 40s, 50s, how has that structured where pollution is in cities? And we kind of know a bit about that already, right? Like these formerly redlined areas that um, are predominantly black, predominantly non-white Hispanic they have a lot more pollution overall and less amenities. And so we already know that, but my question is how does that change biodiversity in cities? And so, you know, that, that's one approach. And for another approach, I'm using camera traps, which you're probably familiar with, where it's just cameras, you, you strap to a tree and you see what walks in front of it. Uh, I'm doing that to think about behavior and use these novel objects to think about how do animals respond to novelty in their environment and how do um, things like environmental health influence that. And, for the other chapter, I'm thinking about trapping and trying to get at health um, inequities because, like you said, right, the you gave the example of rails in Denver, and here in Oakland, where I work, so I work in the Bay. You know, our lab is pretty big on doing place-based research. So, you know, you you work where you live, and so I live in Berkeley. I go to school at Berkeley, and a lot of my work is in the the East Bay, from Oakland to Richmond, um, and also in San Francisco. You know, in Oakland, there they passed this like law in sometime in the late 1900s. I don't know the exact year, but it changed where diesel trucks could drive. Right. Um, so I believe the 880 is where diesel trucks can drive now. And the 580 is where they used to be able to drive. And that cuts through a white and affluent community. And so now we see differences in air pollution, particularly in diesel, particularly matter. Um, but how does that affect the raccoons that live there or the coyotes that live there or the skunks that live there. Um, so that's like one, one of the things I'm interested in is like spatially, how is it is wildlife health um, particularly different? Does it mimic human health disparities um, or does it not have wildlife adapted to it and already like figuring out what's next to respond to? Um, is something I'm really, really interested in, fascinated by. Um, yeah, trying to weave in all these things that, that could affect them. And it gets to a point, as you also know, where it's like so many things can affect their health, right? It maybe not just the pollution, but diet and what they're eating could really mitigate it. Um, who they're interacting with, what other species they're interacting with. Um, people, if they're being hand-fed, which is something that's really common, as again, you probably know. Um, and it's particularly common for like the coyotes in San Francisco, for example, where people either like really, really hate them or they're like, oh my God, they're a wild animal in a city. They need help finding food. Um, so I'm going to put out raw meat for them or I'm going to feed them dog food and things like that. And so that could change their health 
you know, in relation to the environment when it comes to stress, for example. So yeah, those are all the things I'm working on all at once. And so lots of different things going on, but, um, all really exciting. And I hope it all comes together, um, at the end. And I think as biologists and scientists and ecologists, we often go into a system with a story ready to tell, right? Like I hope the story that my work shows is that inequity is bad for everybody. Um, cause we know that in, in animals that, or in, in people that like inequity itself degrades the environment overall. It makes the city more unhealthy for everybody. Um, but is that true for wildlife? I don't know. And even though in a way I like quote unquote, hope it does for my hypotheses, um, it also may not. And I think that's really interesting, um, to see, you know, how are animals combating those harsh environmental pressures that they're experiencing because of inequity? Um, how are they overcoming it? I think we just don't know. And so lots of entry level research happening that I'm excited about. Yeah. I mean, gosh, one of the things I love about talking to all of the different scientists that I get to talk to you for this and just, you know, in general in life is realizing how many questions there are out there that are so interesting and you almost feel like we should already know the answers to them. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely. But yeah. I mean, and I think like I've grown up um, and spent most of my life in, well, and honestly, I guess a huge chunks of North America, the kind of vast majority of North America is bear country. And I think when I think about urban wildlife, most of what I'm thinking about is like, you know, trash safety and how to manage that um, around bears. Um, And I think, you know, I love that you're also focusing on some of these smaller carnivores because, you know, like raccoons are notorious for that. And I don't know nearly as much about what that means for them, what that may mean for them and their health outcomes and, you know, when I think about the trash management systems that I've seen working really well in Colorado, the ones, those tend to be in pretty affluent communities like the, you know, Boulder, Colorado seems to have bear interactions and bear communications down really, really well. That's also, you know, one of the most expensive places that I've ever tried to live in my life. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But what's also interesting about that is in some cities and maybe reversing again, or like, you know, and I, I don't know if this is true, so do not hold me to it, but like, yeah, right. In, in the past, you had this concept of white flight where like a lot of white people in cities when integration was happening came out to the suburbs and the exurbs and things like that. But then in gentrification now, you have a lot of rich white people moving into the denser part of cities right. that are being changed. And so that's pushing either those community people who are maybe black, maybe non-white Hispanics, maybe, you know, whatever they are, they're going to live where they can afford and maybe it's flipping again where like right now the, uh, the you know the, the exurb areas are becoming these areas where you know poorer people are living or, or so on and so forth i think it, it varies on the city and that's what's totally really interesting about urban ecology research is like what's true for san francisco is definitely not always true for oakland and what's true for oakland may be very different for denver um or boulder it's it's we we, we don't yeah. No, and that's the that's the weird thing because um, cities are so different right like right. it all depends on, on the city history and who lives there what's their culture what's their politics um all those things yeah. change what a city looks like and so a coyote here is definitely not the same coyote or or things like that in in denver so yeah right well, I I imagine, there's so many, yeah there's so many questions about like 
you know, like public transit. Like I'm much more interested in living in the exurbs if I can, but that kind of requires that I have a good way to get into town if that's where my, if that's where my work is. And, you know, then we're just, yeah, there's, God, there's so much to it. So what else do we want to kind of expand upon or circle back to as far as environmental justice or inequity in wildlife, um, inequity in people? Um, do you have any examples that you'd like to share? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I'm trying to think a bit more about and learn more about slowly, but surely is like, yeah, just rethinking environmental justice as something that's more than just pollution. I think that's like the catch all and usually um, the, the poster child for environmental injustice, right? Like who's experiencing more air pollution, who has contaminated water, um, all those things, which are really, really, really important to think about. But also other things that are important are, yeah, like who has access to nature? Um, what does that nature look like? Is it of good quality? Um, Again, for me, it's like who's having bad experiences with wildlife and where is that in parts of cities, right? You have New York is probably a good example of like rats, right? And like certain people have higher experience, higher densities of rats. Do we consider that an environmental injustice? I, I, I think so, but like a lot of people don't maybe explicitly think about it. And so like, what does that do for emotional burdens and like a sense of safety and a sense of place? Um, yeah, those are things I'm trying to think about more and like would love, you know, if you're listening and you think about that kind of stuff, yeah, like, please reach out. I'd love to think um, more about it in cities. Um, yeah, that's kind of the only thing maybe I, I have right now to think about to um, expand on. Um, I think it's really fascinating. It's something that's like really new and to my knowledge isn't, you know, this concept of effective environmental uh, justice it's still relatively new thinking about emotions and affect. And so, um, yeah, again, there's a lot of theory that's still not in place. Um, and so I think it'd be really, it's a really exciting new space to think about, particularly yeah. in cities, right. Which is just where I work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, there's so, there's so much, I mean, and I know I've already been thinking through like, gosh, and I bet there's all sorts of interesting questions about, dog ownership and you know you could mm -hmm. i think a lot of times we think about how that looks in parks or wild spaces as far as you know on leash off leash how compliant people are but you know you can also think about com um community vaccination um, rates for their dogs and whether or not dogs are living primarily outdoors or primarily in runs where they may have a mm -hmm. higher likelihood of coming into contact with wildlife and Gosh, I mean, you know, because all, all things come back to dogs for me um, somehow. But um, no, I love this. I, I think there's a lot to think about. And I think one of the other things that I'm really excited about as far as kind of bringing these concepts to um, our listeners is, you know, maybe thinking about ways that conservation dogs could be leveraged in this space. And it seems like a really lovely space for kind of early career volunteer sort of conservation dog folks, because one of the things that a lot of our students and um, other early career conservation folks run into is that how do you how do you transition into a field where so much of the work requires huge chunks of time away from home, big amounts of time in the field? Like, you know, mm -hmm. we get people who message us who are diabetic or have young kids or for whatever reason, you know, maybe don't want to or can't be living in a tent and hiking 14 miles a day, but are really interested in this field and 
um, I think one of the huge advantages of this field is that I'm sure there are still like massive logistics and massive costs, unfortunately, associated with field work. But um, if people were, you know, able to get involved in some sort of community science project with, you know, training their dog to find raccoon scat so you can look at uh, stress levels or toxin levels or whatever, you know, and now I'm just giving you postdoc ideas. Um, <laughs> uh, that would be so much more uh, accessible for a lot of kind of early career people or people who are interested in helping, having their dogs help out in science for a day or two a week, but aren't ready to quit their day jobs and, you know, move away from home for months or years at a time. So. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's a really good point. And you know, one of the colleagues and, and friend that I work with, Tali, shout out to Tali Caspi, who does a lot of coyote stuff in San Francisco. Um, yeah, one of the ways that she she collected a lot of coyote scat, like uh, like hundreds, if not close to a thousand samples. And a lot of the way she did that was because of community scientists, some of them being yeah. dog walkers, where they're mm -hmm. just like, yeah, I'm already walking dogs. Like if I see something that looks like coyote poop, happy to pick it up for you. Right. Um, and did that. And so I think that's like such a phenomenal way. And that's one of the, for me, one of the benefits of urban ecology is you are often working in someone's backyard or you're working mm -hmm. in their neighborhood and they want to know what's going on. They're really curious about their wildlife. Like some of the behavior work we do, me and the postdoc in our lab, you know, I think people are also excited to see like, oh my God, how smart is my animal? Like, are, are, are the raccoons in my neighborhood? Like, are oh, they smarter yeah. than the other ones? And things like that. <laughs> Ooh, are they actually bolder? You know, and so I think it's this really fascinating way to engage with people um, in such an intimate way. And they often hold a lot of knowledge that I don't know anything about, right? Like, I'm not totally. from here. I grew up in Florida. And so I meet with someone that's in the neighborhood and they're like, oh, actually, yeah, like, I've lived here for 20 years and the raccoons always come through that you know storm uh -huh. drainage thing and like you should put something over there and like there's so much value in them and i think more often than not a lot of scientists discount those kind of people and their knowledge and what they can provide and like co-produce with us and i think in urban ecology there's this new leaf turning um and maybe it's been happening for a while but to me it's it feels so new that people are really starting to value that kind of work and it's still something that's hard because academia as you know, does not place value on people who aren't in, who don't have an academic title or they're not a scientist technically yeah. uh, or professionally, you know, whatever that means. I think obviously being a scientist is so much more than a degree in research, but um, yeah, now I'm back, you know, I'm just rambling a little bit, but yeah, yeah I think it, it's, it's a really fascinating space for the, for the kind of work that you described. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really hope we get to see more of it and I know, I mean, we've talked about it some with, you know, invasive or endangered plant work, but I think this has really definitely sparked some ideas for me as far as, um, yeah, more urban wildlife. And there's so many interesting questions out there and so many scientists who are just also really eager to answer interesting questions. And I think it's also just such a cool time as far as scat. I mean, the last 20, 25 years, close to 30 years even, has been such a cool time for fecal DNA, but just looking at some of the stuff that Tal's lab is doing, which is uh, the lab in Oregon that I'm joining, as far as, you know, fecal metabarcoding mm -hmm. and just being able to, like, develop your own SNPs to look at some of these questions, so much of the stuff that wasn't, so many questions that weren't really easily, easily or feasibly answered just, you know, a, a couple of years ago are really starting to come into the fore, and that's super exciting and um, hopefully is going to, boost accessibility. I mean, I think we're going to be seeing some really cool field 
field tools that allow for reading of various questions in our lifetime as well, which, you know, that's just a whole other question of, uh, you know, sci-fi sounding stuff that's getting closer and closer every day. So, um, well, Cesar, where can, um, where can people find you online if they're curious about keeping up with all of the really cool projects you're involved in? Um, and, uh, yeah, just stay, stay up to date with you and your, your goings. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Estian Cesar. So E S T I E N Cesar C E S A R. So Estian Cesar, um, or my website, which is my first and last name with my middle initials. So Cesar O Estian.com. Um, it's somewhat updated. I usually keep it pretty up to date, but my Twitter is my probably my best space to, uh, see what's going on and what I'm working on. Yeah. Well, excellent. And, um, Again, I hope people at home found this interesting and are feeling, as always, inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set today. Maybe that means walking to your local ranger office and asking if anyone is interested in coyotes. Um, and, uh, you know, as always, folks at home, you can sign up for our course, join our Patreon and support canine conservationists by buying mugs and T-shirts and bento boxes all at canineconservationists.org. We'll be back next week. Bye.